Well, this morning we are continuing our series through a uh, manual series. One of my favorite traditions we have as a church in which we invite people from the congregation to share words, testimonies of how God has been Emmanuel, that great prophecy of Isaiah, God with us. Uh, if you were here last week, David started us off in a just remarkable way, David Rouse sharing his story, uh, really a powerful testimony of how God is often with us in unseen ways, ways that sometimes we don't realize until perhaps decades later, but the confidence, the hope that we have and how he is with us even when it's unseen seen or unrecognized. Uh, I'm excited for today's speaker as well, too. Many of you have gotten to know the uh, Kinseviches over the last few months. Uh, Maybe you don't know how to pronounce their last name, but you've probably met them. You know them as Kristen or as Joshua or their kids Wesley, as well as Hannah. Uh, They've really become just dear friends since they've been here. And so it's also not often that we get somebody who's as distinguished as Kristen is to be able to speak to us. So I have to give a little bit, you know her as a congregant and a friend, which she's a great one. Uh, But she also has done some pretty remarkable work. She holds degrees from Wheaton College, a master's from Gordon-Conwell, as well as a PhD from Regent. And part of what brought their family to our area, eventually to our church, was uh, the move here for her to teach at Evangel University. So she's a professor there of counseling, helps lead that program, and has done a lot of work around how the clinical work of counseling can fit into the church context, as well as a lot of her research work on specifically, uh, can I put it bluntly, why pastors need counselors and help as well, too. Uh, She's really spent a lot of time looking at how to produce longevity in ministers, particularly in the Assemblies of God. So no doubt she's been doing really important, necessary work, but it's also, it's just been such a privilege to have them worshiping with us every week and just to become friends as well, too. Uh, I know she'll do a great job and certainly has great testimony. So would you help me welcome Kristen Kensevich as she comes to share with us this morning. Oh, Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It's nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for thy name, which is no part of thee, take all of myself. What's in a name? For Juliet, it would have been far more convenient to call Romeo something else. It was his last name that caused all the trouble. If he were anything other than a Montague, she could have freely loved him. As we consider God by his name Emmanuel, we will ask ourselves, what's in a name? We will examine ways in which we too cry out, be some other name, as we wish for a more convenient version of God. And so we begin. Emmanuel. In Hebrew, this word is an entire phrase with three parts. Ima, with, nu, us, el, God. Ima, nu, el. We often see this translated God with us, but I found it valuable to consider this phrase in the order that the Hebrew used, with us, God. God chose to reveal himself to us with many names, creator God, Elohim or Ohim El, 
mighty God, El Shaddai, or Shaddai El, and God above all gods, El Yan El. At the burning bush, God reveals his name Yahweh to Moses, who's asking how he should refer to God when he returns to the Jewish people after 40 years on the run for murder. He doesn't feel familiar enough with God to call him properly by the name, by name to the Jewish people from which Moses was always distanced. Today, we will think about this with us God by taking each word in that order. Let's begin with with. What does it mean for God to be with? For most of their history, the Jewish people were a nomadic people. They had no permanent home, not to mention no running water or electricity. They had to move with the resources. Imagine that you live a nomadic life. Your money is all tied up in sheep, you have no running water or plumbing, no electricity, and you don't know how long you'll be in any one spot. This is just life. You get pregnant and have babies and many of them die. You might die. In that context, let's think about this with. When you have no security, no guarantees, no stability, then you need a with kind of God. He is legitimately the only life source. And since the time of Moses, you've heard of him as a very present with when he showed up as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. I want to talk about this with kind of God from a counselor's lens and in my own life. As you know, I teach in the graduate counseling program at Evangel, and I've been a licensed counselor for over 15 years. And when I hear that word with, I think about attachment theory and object relations. This is the idea that as babies... We get our security from a strong bond or attachment with our caregivers. And when we don't have that secure attachment, our development is stunted. And we carry dysfunctional patterns with us into adulthood. Our object relations tells us that that we first understand our sense of self by getting information from others. When we're babies, we can't understand that other people are separate from ourselves. Parents are not humans to us, they're objects. My relation to you as an object tells me about me. That's how I begin to understand that I actually am not the same as you. We are separate. Babies learn that by treating caregivers like mirrors. And when you think about it, we naturally do this. We imitate babies and then have them imitate us back. And God designed us this way. So when I think of with and a secure attachment to God... I think about mirroring him. He says, be holy as I am holy. And Paul encourages the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And God mirrors back to us, doesn't he? We might think of this as the work of the Holy Spirit, revealing to us the inner parts of ourselves that we might want to overlook. That might be sin, or it might be places where we need healing, but he holds up a mirror And he encourages us to look deeply into ourselves. In Psalm 139, David asks God to search him, show him in any wicked way in himself. And this is how we spiritually develop. Our with God has presented himself as near. In James 4.8, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
So in my own life, when I pause on this word with, I'm first drawn back to my early childhood and my images of Jesus as my friend. In my mind, and this is genuinely true, I thought this all the time, we played hopscotch together. And as I fell asleep almost every night, I would imagine my pillow as God's hand. And I would gingerly place my cheek down and snuggle into his giant imaginary hand. As a teenager, I remember the first time I wrote down words that I believed God was speaking to me. It turned out to be a song that I titled God's Gift. I won't sing it now, but I remember scribbling down those words which were coming in faster than I could write, and I ran to the piano to put chords to the tune. My choir teachers were so impressed with that song that they had me sing it in several concerts, a gospel message in a very secular public school in New England. God has continued to speak to me in written word, and I have documented as much of it as I could. Obviously, there is a lot of room for human error in that process, so I would not claim these words as scripture, but they are meaningful to me as I journey with Jesus. In the midst of a very hard ministry season several years ago, I wrote back and forth with God almost daily. He took me on a mental journey through the woods during that season of conflict and hardship, a kind of wilderness in my mind that matched the trial I was facing. This is an entry from December 2017, six years ago, that captures that with God during that season, after November journal entries full of despair and pleading with God for answers. So this is what I wrote. Hi, Jesus. I've become so much more eager to sit with you and just be. I can sit for hours just thinking and being with you. I don't even know what to say, really. I've cried out for the usual things, an end to this mess for restoration, for the good things that you've said were coming. You had me looking out from a mountaintop after an uphill climb, telling me to keep my eye on the big picture. Then you had me chopping wood, breaking branches and sawing them off trees, and now you've built a fire for me, and I'm sitting here in front of it, and I'm warm and comforted. It's dark around me. All I can see is fire. I feel like I'm waiting here for a surprise. Someone who will come along and join me or bring me something. I'm not sure, but this feels like you're setting up camp for a bit. A time to recoup, rest, sleep, and settle. Camps are not permanent places to live, but they can feel like home for a little while. I will dwell here with you. There is never anything pressing or urgent when camping. God, what are you doing here? What else would you like me to see? And this is what I wrote as God's reply. There's something familiar about this place. You can't see it now, but you will when the sun comes back up. You'll realize where you are. Dwell with me. Walk with me. This is the culmination of quieting your spirit. An end-of-year camping trip. We'll be here a little while, And we might go fishing or canoeing or hiking for a day, but we'll keep coming back here to rest until this trip is over. You might feel like you have to live with limited supplies right now. That's true of camping. But there is a simplicity and a freedom in that as well. Embrace the simplicity of this time. It will go by faster than you think.
On Christmas Eve that year, I wrote these words from God when I asked him if he would bring a resolution to the ministry conflict and trial that I was in. And he said, that's not what I have for you today. Today I simply have myself, to sit beside you, to dwell in you, to work through you. Just soak in my spirit today. My presence is enough. Time and time again in my life and throughout history, God has reminded us that his withness is enough. His presence is our peace, our sustenance, our stability. But this is not just a me and God kind of thing. Our modern American evangelical heritage has always emphasized a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, I think there is an importance in our personal response to Jesus, like Pastor Chase described when he talked about Peter's response to Jesus in Luke. There is something in this name, Emmanuel, that is usually foreign to our thinking. We've talked about the ima, or with, and now we come to the new, or with us, ima, new. He's not the with me, God. He is the with us, God. So let's pause on that idea of us and think about what that means from a collectivist viewpoint. I am part of the whole. We are the body of Christ, the children of God. We're a flock of sheep, etc. The Bible uses many familial and grouped metaphors for us as followers of Jesus. During that hard ministry season I mentioned earlier, I reflected on this collectivist idea when I decided to distract myself by taking a rowing class. This was several months later. You know those long crew boats with about eight people, and they're all rowing backwards in Boston. You can see them on the Charles River. I decided to try something new and totally outside of a place where anyone would know me. After about 14 years of ministry at that point, I had a new craving to be anonymous for a while. During that time, I wrote a fictionalized memoir to capture my emotions and experiences. Rowing on a crew team of eight taught me quite a bit about thinking in a collectivist mindset rather than just focusing on myself. It was a lesson I needed at that time when focusing on myself was generally a pity party. I want to read an excerpt from the book I wrote at that time as it captures this us mindset. As our rowing coach read the lineups each day, she would say the name of the boat we would be taking and then list off our names in order of seating position. Starting with the stroke seat and then the seven seat, the positions were announced in descending order with the final seat being the bow seat rather than the one seat. Being in two seat often meant having to take extra strokes at the start and end of the row to help the coxswain navigate away from or toward the dock. As I sat in my assigned seat for the day, I thought about the way in which one's personal identity is not a consideration in rowing. Today, I was three-seat rather than Kristen. When the coach or the coxswain had instructions for me, they told three-seat what to do. And I needed to be paying attention in order to follow their instructions when my seat number was called out. I often find myself reflecting on culture and the human psyche, and these thoughts about seat positions and the loss of personal identity were stirring up new reflections. One of the deepest yearnings of my heart was for personal connections with others. Not just mere friendship, but something that goes beyond that. In part, a spiritual connection 
and in part a way of being that breaks out of the cultural norms of the separateness of American society. It was in this yearning for true community, no, it was this yearning for true community that led, led me into the friendship that I had lost. It was the shattering of this hope and dream that had placed me into a place of total despair. So there I was, dutifully positioned in three seats, rowing and doing exactly what I was told. Just fulfilling a role that any willing soul could. Me being Kristen didn't matter at all. Rowing was a release in one way, and being on a team gave me a sense of belonging. But the anonymity of it left me feeling unknown and misunderstood. No one really cared about me there, and they were not there in order to personally care about me or for me. We were just there to row a boat, and we needed each other to do it. But in the end, I was just a body in a seat and a set of arms to move the oar through the water. Today, I am at a starting over point on this idea of us. Joshua and I have poured ourselves out and have had more one-sided relationships than not in the last 20 years. That challenging ministry season was immediately followed by COVID and then a move from the Boston area to Springfield and then the last two years of another stressful and difficult ministry season before shifting again to Bent Oak. Our lead pastor back in Boston told me it's lonely at the top and I remember wanting to quit right then and there. Something inside me immediately refused to believe that. So perhaps it's not surprising to hear that I went on to study clergy well-being and found that close friendships are critical to staying well in ministry. If it's lonely at the top, you're likely to fall off a cliff, which is what happened in my ministry as well. Now, for the first time in 20 years, we're not engaged in pastoral ministry, and it's disorienting and strange. More spiritual camping. And we've wandered here into this bent oak campground And it's quiet and nice, but honestly, I have no idea what us means to me right now. Moving from isolation to community is great in theory, but I'm clunky in practice. I hope to learn more about that in being here, but since I've been spiritually camping for so long, it doesn't feel like anything is permanent. But this with us God, that is the reminder to me that it isn't about me being good at community. It's simply a reality that he is fundamentally the kind of God who is, in fact, with us. Here in this place, even though there's a different combination of people here on any given Sunday, we're not the glue holding us together. That's him. So let's move to the end of Emmanuel. Ima with, new, us, El, God. This Hebrew word, El simply means God with a lowercase g. It's simply the being or object of our worship. It's worthy of our consideration this Advent season. What is the direction or object of our worship? Of course, we want to say Jesus and give the right answer. And I've personally been challenged so far in the Luke sermon series to wonder if I have reacted like those in Galilee, wanting to hoard Jesus for myself getting angry when he refuses to give me what I feel I deserve. After all, I followed him my whole life and sought to be obedient. Jesus grew up with me. 
Don't I deserve some rewards for that? Or perhaps I'm like those in Capernaum, wanting him to stick around and keep doing miracles and tricks for me. Do I want to control him? Or am I humbly asking him to control me? This God, this L, is not one that I can name myself. But our culture is eager to give us gods to worship, ones that look and feel more like us. In my study of the Hebrew and Greek words for with us, I found it interesting that the Greek word for with is meta. Facebook, Instagram, and threads, Mark Zuckerberg's meta, is more than happy to become our with us. But if we're truly honest, our social media us is mostly about looking in our own mirror. And in the search for the God who looks like us and has all that we need, we can easily find a new Alpha and Omega, Amazon's A to Z way of supplying us with everything we command. Instead of seeking God for who he is, we cry out, be some other name, a more convenient name and a self-serving name. As with Juliet and her lines at the start of this sermon, we can't simply rename God for our convenience. If only he was just a slightly different kind of God, maybe one that makes me feel warm and cozy, or one who agrees with my politics, or one who sounds or looks like me. We reverse object relations, and instead of looking to God to define our identity, we look to our identity to define God. I'll conclude by reading the words of Jesus from John 14 and 15 that we can reflect on and take with us. I don't believe we spend enough time reading large chunks of scripture in communal spaces, a practice much more common in Bible times. Let's hear in Jesus' own words how we have a with us God. In these words, he defines both himself and us, and he reminds us that he is not the leaving kind of God. So Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is this that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things 
and bring, your, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the, fa- but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know I love the Father. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. May we abide with each other in Christ this Christmas season. Thank you. listening to uh, those words we were reading from chapter 4 and struck by the interruption of that disciple's question, how is it that you manifest yourself to us but not to the world? The disciples confused about how is it that you will show yourself to us but the world won't see you? Uh, And of course he's imagining God showing up in in the heavens or in some conquering army and how would we see it and not the world? 
Uh, but I was struck by how true that is of this Christmas season in particular. You know, you walk around the mall, you go shopping at the store, you turn on the TV. Uh, the kids had a, a cartoon on the other day that was Christmas, and it was not produced by a Christian <laughs> company. But yet they were singing one of the great hymns of Christmas in the episode. You walk around the mall and you peace, joy to the world, and you hear the music playing and the words, and you say, how is it that this testimony of God's goodness and is with us and is coming could be on this full display in the world around us and yet so much of the world strolls past it, sings along with it and never seems to catch what's being made known, what's being manifest in the world around us. But for those of us who are willing to hear, who have ears to hear and listen, how remarkable is this news that God is with us, that he's come to be with us? And it struck me as Kristen was sharing that It is a strange, the Bible uses the word peculiar, a strange or peculiar thing that God would describe himself as with us. But I think as Kristen pointed out so well, to fully embrace that means you have to become strange and peculiar as well. To receive this God that is with you means you begin to put down the gods of this world, the offerings of this world's idols to be with you. And it means you do, as, as Kristen described, you put yourself into this position of being with God, together with those who are with God. And you come to understand and see and receive this God who is with us. And you become strange and peculiar in this world as he does manifest himself present with you in the midst of a world that doesn't see him. Um, as you were sharing, my heart was just, I want to sense that again this holiday season. Don't let me get so caught up in Amazon and Meta and shopping and going. And This has been, for Ashley and I, one of the busiest Christmas seasons I remember with concerts and kids' recitals and uh, Christmas parties and all great things. Uh, But don't, in the midst of that, let me forget that this season is about God manifesting himself with us. That this Christmas season, we might actually receive him, the strange, peculiar presence of God in this world, with us peace with us and presence with us and comfort with us and joy with us this holiday season. Can we make that our prayer and we're going to worship together this morning. Heavenly Father, we know all too well what it is to see the gods of this world that are constantly pitched to us and advertised to us. And God, if we were really honest, we know how prone our hearts are to drift towards them how quick our attention moves away from you to the things of this world with its desires, its passions, and God, our fears and our, our uncertainty and our, our dreams are captured by the things of this world. And yet this holiday season, we're reminded that you have come into the midst of this world and that you've come to manifest yourself and to make yourself known, but to receive you requires these hearts willing to be humble and willing to be still willing to be quiet long enough to set down the things of this world and to fully step into your presence and what you've come to give us. And so we pray that you would do that work in our hearts, that we would learn what it means for you to be a with us God and for us to be a with you people together, God, even this morning, that we would just welcome your spirit again into our hearts and into this place, that we might worship you. And as we worship you, the things of this world might fade and the goodness of your presence and your glory and your holiness before us would be real to us again. And in the midst of that, we would find new joy and new strength and new peace in the midst of this time. God, we trust you to do that. And so we worship you again in your name, this with us God, Emmanuel, be glorified this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray.